0: Okay, would you open up your Bibles back to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 7? Today we'll be considering together verses 18 to 35. The Word of the Lord says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And you remember, he has healed the centurion servant even when he wasn't in the vicinity, and he raised the widow's son from death. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that you do supply every need and that you take care of us always. We are always safe in your arms. And no one, nothing, can pluck us out of your arms, out of your hand. You keep us, and so we are secure forever. Father, we thank you for how you heal, how you answer prayer, and we, we pray this morning, Father, uh, for those of our church family who are uh, facing things that um, are frightening in themselves, um, things that uh, can be quite intimidating and, and, and make us to doubt. I thank you, Father, that you remain in control, and we pray for good, for healing for them. We pray, Father, as we, as we all tend to, to doubt and to fear at times in our lives. I pray, Father, that this encouragement from your word would, would help us, would build up our faith and deepen it in Jesus. I pray, Father, that we'd be reassured by your kindness and by your grace, even to John as he was suffering from doubt. Please work freely. In our midst today and in every heart, give to us your spirit. I pray that you would be gracious, you'd be pleased to give me your spirit as I preach. May Jesus be exalted and may we be strengthened in him. We ask in his name. Amen. In the late 20s A.D., John the Baptist arrived on the scene in Judea thundering the word of God, a prophet the likes of which the country had not seen for centuries. He called everyone to turn from their sins and to be baptized in repentance and because of the hope of the coming kingdom of God. John not only taught people to repent, but he also, as we know, pointed to Jesus and warned of the judgment that would come in him. So he said, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And you recall that not only did he point to Jesus, but he even baptized Jesus. He saw the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descend on Christ in the, the shape and form of a dove and remain on him, testifying that this individual truly is the Son of God. Later, John would be so bold as to tell Herod Antipas to repent. Herod Antipas was one of the, the Tetrarchs. Uh, he was the Tetrarch of Galilee, the ruler, uh, Puppet ruler basically on behalf of Rome. But he told him to repent because Herod Antipas had divorced his wife and remarried his sister-in-law, who had been married to, to Herod Philip. And so it was not so much for proclaiming Jesus, but for that moral courage and telling everyone, small and great, to repent that John the Baptist was arrested and put into prison. Now, Jesus, however, went on to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. John languished in prison. Jesus continued to work wonders by the word of his mouth. And John continued in prison. Great crowds were were drawn to Christ for what he was doing and saying. And John continued alone in prison. You see the problem here? John had preached the coming Messiah and had preached that when He comes, there will be judgment. So where is it? The righteous were suffering. The Messiah's prophet Himself was in prison. Herod Antipas and Herod and all the rest of the Herods were going on, continuing to do what they did. The religious hypocrites were continuing to to flourish. The righteous were suffering. So how long? Until this judgment on the wicked, how long would John be left to, to suffer in prison now? It doesn't tell us in chapter 7 that John was in prison. That's back information that we got back in chapter 3. Um, and so, this is what John does. When reports continue to come to him in prison about what Jesus is doing, he calls two of his disciples and sends them to Jesus with this message, this question. Verse 19. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? You'll notice that that question is given to us in verse 19. This is interesting. And then it's repeated in verse 20. Now, normally, the narrator could just have us assume that John gave the questions to his disciples to ask, and then the disciples went ahead and did Ask that question without bothering to repeat the question in the narration, right? I mean, we could actually say, Luke, you know what? This is kind of bad form. You know what being redundant is? What about an economy of words? We could say that this is bad form. But we know that Luke is careful always when he writes. And Luke is very deliberate. And he is only following the leading of the Holy Spirit. So why is this question repeated in verse 20 when it's already given to us once? For emphasis. Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Is the question of history. Since Christ has come. This is the great question. This is the crucial question that everybody must ask. And so that's why Luke is giving it to us twice. Is Jesus the one that God has promised? Is he the Messiah? God's anointed king. Is he the one to save us? Or should we look for someone else? Can you be sure about Jesus? Can you be certain? Have you ever had doubts that Jesus is the one? You know, we don't talk about our doubts very often. We, uh, If we struggle with doubts, when we struggle with doubts, we get angry with ourselves, we get rather distressed, and we want to keep those things covered up, and so usually we keep our doubts to ourselves. We don't want to look like less of a Christian, less godly we might not even want to confess openly to god in the secret place the doubts that we have about him and about his word john is somebody that we we laud for courage you know even being willing to to stick his finger in the face of the king and tell him to repent for the sinful remarriage to his sister-in-law who he We stand back and we say, I don't know that I would have the guts to do something like that. We'd all probably all say, there's no way I'd have the guts to do that. So we applaud John for the courage he shows. Perhaps part of his courage is the fact that he was willing, when he had doubts, to express those doubts. To actually bring those questions out into the open, into public. Can you struggle with doubt about God and still be faithful? We need to talk about our struggle with doubts. In fact, I think that this is why Luke, this whole gospel was written. Because the people of God do struggle with uncertainty. Even the people of that generation who saw Jesus, who witnessed the miracles, who were on the other side of the resurrection and saw the risen Jesus for themselves, struggled with doubts and uncertainty about Christ Incredibly enough, this is why Luke's gospel was written. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that Luke crafted, he said, this orderly account to talk about the things that had been accomplished among us so that we might have certainty, certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Now, there are different kinds of doubts. There's the kind of doubt that God judges when we are given a plain revelation from God and we refuse to believe it. We saw that in John's father, the priest, Zechariah, back in chapter one. You remember when Gabriel said to him, you are you and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a son whom you're going to name John. And and Zechariah said, how can this be? He refused to believe God's plain revelation and God disciplined him for it. He judged him so that he was unable to, to hear or to speak because he didn't believe God's word. Now we see uncertainty in Zechariah's son, John. But it's a different kind of doubt and different circumstances. You see, Zechariah was given a plain word and disbelieved in that moment of revelation. John himself was a preacher of God's revelation. But then in his suffering, he struggled to be certain about it. And we need to notice, we need to learn from what John does with these doubts because he doesn't run with these doubts into disbelief. He doesn't. He doesn't deny Jesus. He doesn't certainly defy him. He doesn't shift his hopes or his allegiance for a moment. Rather, he brings his uncertainty To Jesus. Again, he doesn't run with his doubts down the path into disbelief. He brings his uncertainty and his doubt straight to Christ. Think about this for a moment because it really is incredible how honest the Bible is about the doubts that the heroes of our faith suffered. I mean, this is a rather embarrassing episode. When you think about it, the prophet of the Messiah is doubting the identity of the Messiah and bringing that doubt to him. Why does Luke even record this? Why doesn't it get covered up? And I think we see other religious texts in the world covering up the flaws and the faults and the sins of its heroes. The Bible doesn't at all this is one element of the scriptures that I really appreciate that I love in fact because it speaks to the integrity of the Bible God gives his people room to express their misgivings and their doubts and their fears in fact not only does God not ignore these embarrassing episodes the Bible actually concentrates on them whether you're talking about the psalmist Or the prophets, when they cry out, Where are you, Lord? How long, O Lord? Whether you're talking about the apostles. The Word, think about this. The Word of God concentrates on the doubts of God's people in God's Word. The Word of God concentrates on the doubts of God's people in God's Word. Now, doesn't that sound incredibly self-defeating? Why would you concentrate on these things? For one, because they are true. For two, because this speaks to our God, that he is gracious with all of those who come to him with their uncertainty, their doubts, and their fears. Now, let's notice Jesus' response. It's an awesome display of his power over the next hour. And then he gives a promise. Verses 21 and 22. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news, preached to them. Uh, It's making me laugh a little bit because, once again, you don't have to include all of this. And you might think, man, Luke is being wordy. But he's not. You, You see, all we really need is Jesus did all of these wonders and then Jesus telling John's disciples, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. But Jesus goes on to give them the exact wording of what he wanted them to say. And that's the part that we don't really need unless there is more to it than meets the eye. Okay, so, and I that obviously that is the case. Jesus responds with incredible display of power. He doesn't just say, yeah, I'm the Messiah, of course I am. Go back and tell John, don't worry about it. I am who I've been saying and proving all along. Instead... There's this incredible display of power. And then Jesus gives the exact words that these two men are to relay back to John in prison. Do you know why? Because you might notice uh, cross-referencing. Uh, you might re- notice a cross-reference note on the on this verse here, uh, there in your Bible. Because Jesus is actually drawing directly from various passages... In Isaiah, you see, these two men have seen ancient prophecies that covered the spectacular work of the Messiah fulfilled right before their eyes. And Jesus is giving them the exact words so that John will know this is the fulfillment of Scripture. It's not just what happened in this moment. This is the fulfillment of what the Word of God said the Messiah will do. And I'll give you one of those passages. Uh, Don't have time necessarily to turn there, but it's from Isaiah 35. And um, I think that this would would have been especially meaningful to John. This is Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy when John heard the words, which were quotes from various passages in Isaiah, I have no doubt that as a man of God, knowing the Word of God, he knew more of the context of those quotes and would have realized the encouragement that Jesus meant for him personally. So Jesus says, take that back to John. There's nothing here that expresses exasperation on Jesus' part, there's no kind you know, the eye roll of disgust or anything. What is wrong with that guy? How can he doubt me? There's none of that. Jesus is gracious with those who bring their uncertainty and their fear and doubts to him. Now look at verse 23. This is what he says to the one who struggles with doubt. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why would anyone be offended? John included. Why would anyone be offended by Jesus? Because Jesus doesn't match our expectations. As the Messiah. He is not the Messiah, the Savior that we would dream up. He doesn't match our expectations. He doesn't fit into the the preconceived mold that fallen humanity has, has crafted. You see, no one expected a Messiah who would delay the judgment of his enemies. They all expected the Messiah to conquer Rome immediately. But Jesus delays the judgment. And nobody expected a Messiah who would absorb the the judgment of his enemies in himself either. He doesn't match our expectations. See, the, the Messiah that we would have come up with would not be born in some... Nasty barn and laid in a manger. The Messiah that we would have come up with would have worn a crown right from the start and never would have borne a cross. So in Jesus' day, they were expecting a conquering king in our, in our own day. Jesus still doesn't match expectations because today people don't want a king and a Lord. They want someone who is more like a personal life coach. Jesus doesn't match The expectations that we have in our flesh. But we don't get to decide who Jesus is going to be. We don't get to decide that. He is the Messiah of God. He is the I Am. He is who He is. And He will not be changed. He is the Messiah who was with God in the beginning. And who is God. Always has been God. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, who takes me as I am by faith. Now we get into, we really, what we have here in this unit are three, this unit of scripture, verses 18 to 35, we really have three subunits. And next, when we get into verse 24, it looks like, as Jesus begins to talk about John and evaluate John, it looks like Jesus is switching tracks, but he's really not. Um, let me explain. I have a little nephew. My, my newest nephew is now, uh, seven months old, right? Seven months. And, uh, he's just starting to, to want to walk. He lifts himself up and he's holding on to some piece of furniture and he really wants to close the gap between that object and, and another. So he, you know, he starts, but he doesn't get anywhere. He'll take a step. And then he's all trembling and he loses his balance. And it's like the least little resistance can can knock him down on his butt. And sometimes I think that we feel our faith is on that level. That it's all tremors and it's all wobbles. And the least resistance, the least suffering in life will just knock us flat on our faces. But this is what Jesus wants to know in this next part of the scripture. And I think that this is going to be hard to believe when you first hear it, but we will deal with the text as it is. Jesus wants all the trembling, struggling souls in his kingdom to know that they are great. He wants us to know, he wants you to know that you are great. You say, Brother Mike, I think you're going too far. Let's look at the text. Verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Jesus begins with two rhetorical questions. They're asked for effect, and they have obvious answers. And the obvious answer to these two questions is no. He, he wasn't, John, wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. He wasn't like a man dressed in splendid clothing. John wasn't soft at all. He wasn't soft. He, he was anything but a man of his times. He was anything but a, a byproduct of his culture. He didn't bend to anybody's whims. Not the Pharisees, not the Herods, not Rome, not... Uh, The elite in society, not anyone. So Jesus presses further. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Where did John fit into what we call redemptive history? I'll introduce you to a new theological term. This is what we call God's great work of redemption in history. It's called redemptive history. Where does John fit into that? Well, personally, John was a throwback prophet, if ever there was one, because he was the kind who would thunder the word of God to anyone, anywhere, whether it was on the the banks of the Jordan River or in the throne room of a king, he was going to tell them plainly what God's word says. But more than that, and this is how he fits into redemptive history, John was the prophet that God had sent to be the personal forerunner of the Messiah, to prepare the way for the coming of God's king. For this reason, John is, bar none, the greatest of the prophets. In the words of Jesus, more than a prophet. Jesus quotes here from Malachi 3 verse 1 to show that, and this is one of the last passages of scripture in the Old Testament. Basically, the Old Testament closes with a prophecy about John, that he will be a prophet in the vein of Elijah, greater than Elijah, because he will prepare the way For the coming of the Lord. And so he's not just the greatest of the prophets. Jesus at the beginning of verse 28. Is absolutely glowing with his praise. Let me read that again. He says I tell you. Among those born of women. None is greater than John. That's an incredible statement. It's incredible praise. We really need to think about what it is that made John great. And this is important. Sounds like, yeah, how important is this? How relevant? If we understand what made John great, we can understand what makes us, even the least in the kingdom of God, great. You see, it wasn't John's morality that made him great. It wasn't merit of any kind. Jesus does praise John. But that praise is not owing to John. It's actually owing to Jesus. In effect, Jesus is saying, no one can touch John because John was put close to me. And this sound, this is incredible because we I, I say very often, no one has ever spoken like this man, which is a quote from John 7. About Jesus. No one ever no one ever talks like this. No one has ever talked like this in history. But it would be like uh if we were playing softball at church picnic and you had two captains choosing teams. And uh let's say that okay, let's say that I'm one of the captains and I, I choose one of you to be first on my team. You come on my team and you're thinking, Man, I'm the first chosen, I'm awesome, and I put my arm around you and I say You are great because you're on my team. You are great because I chose you. That is exactly what Jesus is saying. John is not great because of John. John is great because of Jesus. John was set apart from the crowd because of this unique relationship to Jesus as the Messiah a relationship that had been established before John was born. We read about that. We don't have time to rehearse it in Luke chapter 1. So it wasn't John's choices that made him great. It was God's choices for him. Let me quote from uh, James Edwards. He says, John is the critical transition figure between the promise of the kingdom of God and its fulfillment in Jesus. His role is essential and without equal in preparing for the kingdom. So he goes on to say, James Edwards, he goes on to say that being this transitional figure between two eras, the old and the new, it's like John has one foot in the age of promise and one foot in the age of a fulfillment. One foot in the old day, one foot in the new day, one foot in the old covenant, one foot in the new co- covenant. He's between. And so he surpassed everybody who was before him because of his unique relationship to Jesus, the Messiah. And so the divine logic goes like this. Anyone who has both feet planted in the kingdom, both feet in the age of fulfillment, both feet planted in the new covenant, no matter how little they are, is greater even than John because of our proximity to Christ, because we have seen the gospel promised, fulfilled in Christ's life and death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into glory. And that's why Jesus says at the end of verse 28, look at it, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. There are remarkable statements in these first several verses of this passage, which I know, I mean, 18 to 35, it's like we go from exciting stuff, you know, Jesus heals the, the centurion servant, he's not even there. And then he that's the first resurrection from the dead with the, the widow's son. And then we get into this and it's got this, of confusing stuff, it's kind of complicated. It's like, uh, let's get back to the good stuff. But there are remarkable statements here. For one, the last words that we have from John are his first expressions of doubt, and it's in that context that Jesus says he is the greatest, John is the greatest mortal ever born. And then he turns around and says, even more remarkably, that the least in the kingdom is greater than even than him, even than John. Again, how can this be? Because John was a member of the era of promise and we are full-fledged members of the new day, the era of fulfillment. Perhaps there are times when you feel that doubt, the head of doubt rearing its ugly head in your heart. And it's not that you don't believe in Jesus. It's not that you are about to say that there is salvation found in another name. You're not about to shift your hopes or your allegiance. But you doubt. And if you you feel like the least in the kingdom. You feel so small and even despicable. And there might be any number of reasons for your doubt. Maybe you hear the world's constant mockery of God's truth. Constantly mocking the Bible's account of creation, of the Bible being the Word of God, of Jesus being the way, the truth, the life, about Jesus' resurrection. You hear that constant barrage of mockery and all of a sudden you start to think, could so many smart people... Be so wrong? Or maybe it's just that you know, you're know you going through life and you're thinking about the Christian faith and all that the Bible claims. It's so good and it's so beautiful. Can it really be so true? And you might have this moment where it seems just absolutely implausible. And maybe your doubt is not because of what the world is saying. Maybe your your doubts that you struggle with are just because of you in your heart. You know, God has been good to you, but yet you have doubt and you have fear. And you wonder if God is going to be faithful. You wonder if God is going to come through, if your prayers are actually getting through the roof, as we say. And you feel so small. And you're like that man... Uh, Jesus said to him, if you believe, and he said back to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You feel like uh, your faith is baby legs, all wobbles, all trembling. I want you to be encouraged. The Bible doesn't say strong faith saves. It doesn't say mature faith saves. It says faith saves. It's not the degree of faith that is absolutely essential, but that we put all of the faith we have, whether it's great or small, strong or weak, that we put it all in Jesus. It's not the degree of faith that's crucial. It is the object of your faith. And even if your faith is weak, if it's all in Jesus, it is God-given. It is Spirit-breathed. It is born-again kingdom faith. You are a part of the new creation. The new day, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. So the Bible, Jesus is saying, though your faith is small, He has made you great. He has made you great. And that is how He sees you. You say, Brother Mike, are you sure you're not overdoing it? I'm just saying this is what Jesus says. Verse 29, our next, our final subunit here. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The crowds who heard Jesus' evaluation of John had one of two responses. If they had rejected John in the past, his call to repentance and baptism as a sign of that repentance, they had rejected that message, they rejected what Jesus said now. If they embraced John's message and the command to repent, they embraced what Jesus said now and by their actions declared, this is the way that is right. That's what it means when it says they declared God just. They said, this is the way that is right. This is the way that is true. Jesus then goes on in verses 31 and following to compare the people of his day to children that can't be pleased no matter what they have. And so there was this proverb from the marketplace. You know, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We wanted to have a celebration and you didn't want to celebrate. So we, played, uh, we sang a dirge for you, a song of mourning, and you didn't weep. You can't be pleased. You, you don't know what you want. Jesus said, the children of my generation are like that. They can't be pleased, no matter what. Why is that? Because John came and he was like this severe ascetic. He deprived himself of every comfort and luxury and convenience that there was. He was countercultural to the core. And what did the people say? Man, what is wrong with this guy? They said, he's nuts. He's possessed. And then Jesus was different. He celebrated all of God's gifts with joy. And the people said about him, look at verse 34, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John didn't celebrate and he was deemed possessed. And Jesus did celebrate and he was lumped in with all the dregs of society, what the culture would regard as the dregs of society. And Jesus closes off this way in verse 35. Yet, Wisdom is justified by all her children. We we have all been there like these children. We have all, and, and oh, I'm afraid I have to admit that I'm like this a lot, being self-absorbed and uh, just plain selfish, you know, being impossible to please. Nothing is quite like how I want it, so just forget the whole thing. I'm going to be miserable no matter what. We're, we get... Even as adults, we are like that. Jesus said that's what his generation was like when it came to John and to him. That the people were impossible to please. Because Jesus didn't match their expectations. He didn't fit into the preconceived mold that they had for a Messiah. They said, he's too demanding. Or some said, he's too soft. Some said, he... You know, some thought he was too kingly and others too meek. People say he's too legalistic. Others say he's too gracious. Some people say Jesus is too narrow. And others, the religious, self righteously religious, say he's too open. He doesn't match expectations. And these people are blind to the glory of God that is shining in the face of Jesus. He is not the Messiah that we would dream up. He isn't. He wasn't the world conqueror that the Jews expected. And he's not the life coach that people want today. You know, Jesus doesn't tailor everything to meet my needs. His command is immovable. And his grace is immeasurable. His throne is the highest throne. And his humility is the deepest humility. He is the holy priest and the offering for sin. He is the greatest king and the lowliest servant. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He didn't fit the expectations of His day, even amongst His own disciples and the prophet who announced His coming. But I want to ask you, When you realize who he is, when you get the plain revelation that this is who Jesus is and he doesn't fit into any cultural mold, will you suppress that revelation? Will you say, I don't like that part of who Jesus is, so I'm going to ignore that part and I prefer this part and this is what I'm going to cling to. Or will you embrace him for who he is? Will you, in his words, not be offended by him? Will you suppress this revelation? Or will you cry out to him, even when you have doubts, and say, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus did differently than was expected, and he still does. He is who he is. He is the I am of God, and he is not going to change. The children of the world reject him because of that. He doesn't fit into their mold. But the children of wisdom, Jesus said in verse 35, they recognize the truth about Jesus Christ and they realize we don't stand over and against Him in judgment. He stands in judgment of us. And we are not to make Him in our image. We are to be conformed to His image. So what will you do with Jesus? And even as you struggle with uncertainty about any one part of Him, or what he is doing in your life, or his timetable, how he's going to provide. Because there are often times when how he answers prayer and when he answers prayer doesn't match what we have in our timetable or our expectations. Will you bring your fears and your doubts to Jesus and confess them? He wants you and I to know that we don't have to keep these things hidden to ourselves. In the secret place and even with our brothers and sisters, we should be able to confess our doubts and our fears because Jesus wants you to know that even if your faith is weak so that you feel like the least in his kingdom, because of your relationship to him, you are great and that is how he sees you. Let's pray. Father, you have put into your your word things that we would not have put and we would not have imagined. Not only about Jesus as we've been talking, he doesn't fit what we would come up with for a Savior. We never could have anticipated as fallen humanity that he would delay judgment and take it on himself. We didn't think that there was going to be a cross for him. But also, Father, this talk about the least in the kingdom being greater than any who came in the old era, it's, it's hard to comprehend. And Father, it's probably something that we will all uh, struggle to have certainty about. We will doubt how could this be true doesn't God, we feel, doesn't He know who I am? Father, our, our sins, not only our doubts and our fears, but our bitterness and our selfishness makes us feel small. And we know truly our sin is great. It's beyond even our ability to know. But You know it. You know all of our sin down to the, to the depths You know all of our unbelief, and yet you declare in your word that the least in your kingdom is great in your eyes. I pray, Father, that we would take that for what it is worth, and we would believe it, and we'd be encouraged by it, and we would be comforted and just reassured of your love, your presence, and your goodness in our lives. So I pray for all these here no matter what doubt or uncertainty they have in this time, I pray, Father, that they would know your love. In Jesus' name, amen.